When I was a kid, of course, we would love to have, I would love to have sleepovers with my church friends. I know they're not all too popular these days, but back then they were. And at one point in time, you know, us kids would have these sleepovers or asked to have them almost every single week. There were a lot of times when my parents said yes. There were also a lot of times when my parents said no. And honestly, as a little kid, there were times when I doubted my parents' love for me. Of course, I probably wasn't so so self-aware and probably couldn't articulate it like that. But looking back, that's basically what it was. It felt like they didn't love me. I doubted that they had my best interest in mind because in that very moment, they weren't letting me do what I so wanted to do. Maybe you know what I'm talking about. Maybe you have done the same. My guess is you have. Our kids too over the years have done the same. And you know, one of the most useful strategies that me and Melanie have adopted in addressing the issue is this. It's when they say, you never let me fill in the blank, whatever that is. For me, it was, you never let me sleep over at friends' houses. The strategy is to say, no, that's actually not true. And then we would go on to list evidences of how that is not true. Remember, just last week, we tried to arrange a sleepover. And it worked out, right? Did did you have fun? Yes. And then do you remember the month before? We did the same thing. And do you remember that it was us who initiated? We told you, we want you guys to hang out and develop friendships and get to know one another, learn to love one another. So ask so-and-so if you guys can hang out and if he can come over and if their parents are okay with it. And the strategy really helps. It helps primarily because it helps remind them, it helps remind me when I was a kid of the truth that in fact, despite what we feel in this very moment where we're not getting what we want, no, the truth is, is that we love you. Well, church, today we have a powerful reminder in the midst of suffering, that God does, in fact, love his children. Join with me in turning to 1 Peter chapter 5. And as Pastor Mako mentioned, here we finish up the book of 1 Peter. And we look at the conclusion of the letter, 1 Peter chapter 5. I'm going to read verses 1 to 14, but our focus really is on 5 till the end, 5 to 14. As you turn there, I'll give you a little bit of background. The Christians who received this letter were Christians spread out through what we call today as Turkey, modern-day Turkey, which was part of the Roman Empire led by Nero. And Paul the, uh, sorry, Peter the Apostle writes into this situation through this letter to those Christians who were suffering, suffering for Jesus' name, and he encourages them to press on. If you look over at 5.12, right? In fact, he himself is writing from the, the main city of the empire, Rome, which he terms Babylon, right? Of course, this is just symbolic, symbolic Babylon because the Babylonians were known for their opposition against God and God's people. And so he's writing in Rome to all of these Christians spread out through modern day Turkey. And in 5.12, we basically have a summary there. He says the friends that he's writing with by Silvanus or Silas, a faithful brother as I regard him, I have written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. He's encouraging them to stand firm in the grace of God. History records that the Christians really did, in fact, need to stand in Christ and stand firm because under Nero, persecution would certainly ramp up in the years immediately after this letter was written. Nero would go on to blame the Christians in Rome for for a devastating fire that he himself set. And then he would go on to brutally persecute Christians. Now, even though at the time of this writing, These Christians were not experiencing major persecution in terms of empire-wide. They still were experiencing some degree of persecution, challenge, and difficulty. And you maybe know the same in relation to challenge, difficulty, and suffering. So as we persevere by God's grace, 
Let's hear now these words of God. Let's stand to read 1 Peter chapter 5, and I'm going to read verses 1 to 14. 1 Peter chapter 5, let's stand to read verses 1 to 14, basically the whole chapter. So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and as a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is to be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you. Not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you'll receive the unfading crown of glory. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time He may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on Him because He cares for you. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. By Silvanus, a faithful brother, as I regard him, I have written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring you that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. She who is at Babylon, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings, and so does Mark, my son. Greet one another with a kiss of love. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. Please be seated. No doubt in this fallen world, in this sinful world, everyone experiences difficulty, challenge, suffering, and at various times, discouragement, maybe even temptation towards despair. We live in a fallen and sinful world. Because of sin, everything is messed up, and the Bible gives us an understanding for why this is the case. Everything is messed up. When it comes to ourselves, the Bible says that our wills and our desires are tainted by sin. They're corrupted. The Bible also says that sin has had an effect on our minds in Romans chapter 1. We even feel sin's effects on our bodies as we wrestle with sickness, even death. We know too that relationships, right? We just looked at ourselves. We know too that relationships are messed up. When Adam and Eve sinned, they sinned against God. And then as the story unfolds, as history unfolds, you see them sinning against each other. And then you even see that man's relationship with the ground is messed up. By the sweat of his brow, he would have to work. In the face of all these issues, Christian, thank God that we have a wonderful reminder in the word, in our passage today, that God loves you. Amidst all of that, that God loves you. And here are our points today as we conclude our series in First Peter. Point number one, God loves you. Of course, he's going to show up again on the screens later on. Point number two, fight to remember God's love for us. And then point number three, God will deliver you. Point number one, God loves you. If you look there at verses six and seven, this is where I'm getting it. In the face of suffering, it is so encouraging to know that one who loves us is with us in the midst of our suffering and is with us, not in the midst of the suffering, but all the way until the end, no matter how much suffering we might go through. Well, friends, this passage, in this passage, we are to know that God is with us all the way until the end, and he loves us. In their suffering, Paul calls Christians to, look there at 5, 6, 5, 6, Peter, sorry, calls Christians to humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him. Now, listen to this, because he cares for you. So we have the command to humble yourselves, and we have how they are to humble yourselves there, by casting all of our cares and anxieties on him. And then you have the reason for why we can do this at all. It is because God loves us. God cares for us. 
because God cares for his people, therefore, right, we can entrust ourselves. We can humble ourselves before him, casting all of our cares and anxieties before him. Now, friends, we know this desire in our own relationships, don't we? The same thing goes with us and God, right? On the human side, if I know that this person has my best interests in mind all the time and loves me and is going to persevere despite my sin even, and even help me battle sin, then why wouldn't I go to that person, right, to receive the help, to receive the care, to be picked up, help be picked up off the ground again so that I might continue? Well, the same goes for God. When we know that he loves us, that he wields a sovereign power for us, that he cares for us, that everything he promises he delivers for us, why would we not go to God there in verse 5 or verse 6 and humble ourselves before him, entrusting ourselves to him? We have all the more reason to go to God. You look there in verses, verse 5, right? God gives grace to the humble, but he opposes the proud. The proud are those who refuse to trust in God and to walk in his wisdom. And in this day, right, there were many who were proud. Think of Nero, who was rejecting God. Think of everyone else who, is, who are rejecting or persecuting God's people. They were living as if they were kings, doing whatever they please, paying no mind to God whatsoever even though he is the one who gave them life and breath. Christians were reminded here, right? Don't follow them and their ways, the worldly ways, but instead entrust yourself to God, knowing that God loves you and gives grace to the humble. And you get this beautiful picture there where God uh, gives grace to the humble, but then he opposes. And it really is just, he's just kind of repeating what he says there in 3.12. Turn over there. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. So you get this idea that God is ever listening to his people who humble themselves and entrust themselves to God. Peter addresses there in verse five, the younger. He's saying younger guys, younger people submit to the elders and pastors of the local church He addresses them maybe because in the face of persecution, it might be the younger who are going to rise up faster, maybe act too quickly, brashly, hastily, adopt the world's ways even. And when they are insulted or reviled, they're going to return that to the citizens of Rome who persecute persecute them. And so he encourages them perhaps to submit to the elders and pastors. But then he turns to everyone, the whole entire church, show humility to one another as you walk in the footsteps of Jesus. What a beautiful picture of of God's people shining their light in the midst of the Roman Empire that was against God and his people. They insult, they revile, they beat, which they were some of the Christians. They were beating some of the Christians. But amongst God's community, he says, be humble towards one another. And God's ears will always be open to you in the midst of suffering. To suffering Christians, this here is a call to Christ-likeness, right? They may experience hostility from the world, but in the people of God, there's humility. Earlier, we had seen that there are calls towards loving one another. There's calls towards meekness, walking after Jesus, walking in his footsteps, There is grace, there is deliverance, and even though there is hostility from the world, there is true hope with God. Friends, we too are called to stand firm in God's grace and find comfort in our suffering in the hands of God. Hostility out here, but in here we are called to humble ourselves, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, casting all your cares upon him, knowing that he is cares for you. You see the command there, humble yourselves. It's an interesting phrase, humble yourselves. Normally it's our sufferings that frankly humble us, isn't it? Our sufferings humble us in all sorts of different ways and all sorts of different reasons. I think because it's so hard to come face to face with the fact that we are so limited that really we can't do anything. 
In other words, we are not sovereign, we are not God, and so therefore we are humbled. And we might push against that fact, right? When suffering comes, when some sort of danger comes, where we feel threatened, we might cling to the fact that, no, we got to deliver ourselves out of this mess. And so we say, we approach that suffering, maybe we open our eyes and we are told, we'll just stare into the mirror and declare your manifestations, as if you were God, and so maybe some people encourage us to say, I will not be overtaken by this. But if we are realistic with ourselves, we know that even that, over time, will lead to anxiety, worry, distress. These are simply reminders, right? Our own anxiety. If you're feeling anxiety about anything, we just moved Jeremiah into UCI the other day on Friday, I don't feel particularly anxious, but let's say I did. Even that is an example, a reminder that we are not sovereign. The good news, though, for the anxious soul, and I certainly know anxieties. I probably know more anxieties in the last six years or seven years since 2017 with my health problems than I had known previously. And so, you know, I have this gout arthritis thing, and so I, I know uh, the, the suffering and the pain, which literally felt like torture, and uh, the pain begins in my big toe. The big toe humbles me. But now when I feel like just a little thing going on with my big toe, uh, at least uh, in, the, in the highest, the worst point of the anxiety, it would make me think, oh no, it's going to get so worse. It's going to get so bad that I'm going to have to basically like ignore everyone and just focus on breathing and staying alive. And then I got to take medicine. The medicine's going to have a side effect and the side effect's going to have repercussions on all sorts of different things. That's the anxious soul. Maybe you know this anxiety too. Well, friends, the wonderful thing here is that in this anxiety for the anxious soul... He says here that there is always a way out from the distress and torture of being humbled by circumstance. What's our way out of being humbled by circumstance? It is to humble yourselves. Humble yourselves. Just get ahead of it. Humble yourselves. Don't do it yourself. And it's not just humble yourself to fate and circumstances. Right? If we climb into the worldview or the way that somebody thinks, let's say they don't believe that there is God, is a God, or maybe they believe that God is distant and impersonal, and so then they create this thing called fate or circumstances or just life. But here he doesn't say humble yourselves to fate or circumstances, because even that's hopeless. There's no hope in that. He says humble yourselves to God, who was over those circumstances. We are called to, commanded to, Humble yourselves under God. For Christians, we know that even right, even this, this fallen and sinful world with all of its bad circumstances, in all of those things, God is working in the midst of that to refine your faith, chapter one. He's working to purify you, chapter four. He's working to grow you in Christ's likeness. He's building up his people so that we would proclaim his glory, his grace to the ends of the earth, his grace and his glory as he alone is the one who can bear your trust, your hope. God uses our circumstances of life to reveal, right, as I mentioned before, what is, the, what is on the mantle of our hearts. He exposes what should not be there, and he helps us see that he should be up there, that only he alone should be the focus central in our lives, on the center of our mantle. This kind of testing, if you look over at chapter 1, go to chapter 1. What does this testing look like? These circumstances are the same. This, this, this fallenness, this sinfulness that we live in and experience, uh, it's the same for everybody. Everybody has to go through these difficult things on account of sin. But God promises to use these things to do what? Look at one six. In this that is suffering, in this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. So that, purpose statement, the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found 
to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. The glory that Christ brings with him is the glory that we share in all by his grace. That's what God is doing in the midst of our circumstances. He is delivering us. Look there in verse 10, uh, 5.10, to eternal glory. Right? He says, after you have suffered a little while, this kind of echoes chapter 1, the God of all grace who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, he's going to restore us. Friends, I wonder, I wonder for you, who delivers you? We are not delivered by our own hand. We are not delivered by a new earthly government. According to the word, final comfort and deliverance is found in and under the mighty hand of God. This phrase, the mighty hand of God, is a a super fascinating and encouraging phrase. We can think of the Exodus, where God acts in his sovereignty to both deliver his people and also to judge those who oppose him. And you know what Pharaoh is guilty of in Exodus chapter 10, verse 3? God indicts Pharaoh through Moses, and he says, How long will you refuse to humble yourselves before me? Our our passage echoes that. Remember, Pharaoh was part of Egyptians' number of gods. They deliver themselves, if you think of yourself as, as a deity. And you see the parallels of Old Testament Israel under Pharaoh and then the Christians under Nero and our church today, Christians today, underneath governments who are persecuting Christians all around the world, just as Old Testament Israel was to humble themselves and trust in the Lord, as was Pharaoh, so the church today is to humble ourselves before God. It's certainly not always easy, though, is this, to humble ourselves, to trust in Him, especially in the midst of suffering, obviously. The reason why is is because we live in this in-between time, right, where we have been delivered, but yet we await final deliverance. Sin, death, and Satan have been definitively crushed. As Christ got up from the grave, the verdict is given, destroyed, done for. But friends, Satan's not going out without a fight. And we have the promise, we can cling to the promise that yes, at one time in the future, he will in fact be destroyed once and for all and the key will be thrown away. We live in the already salvation. We know it. We have this peace. We have this joy. We are in fact justified. We are in fact sanctified. That is set apart for God's use. But we await the not yet. We await the day when finally Christ will gather us to himself. We await the day when Jesus will say, well done, good and faithful servant. We await the day when finally we're going to be free from this body of sin and we will be absolutely sanctified, perfect, all by the grace of God when we enter into glory. We are Christ already, But we await the day when Christ comes to gather us to himself. We live in the already, but not yet. And basically counseling, you know, when we get together and and, uh, we counsel one another in the word, a lot of our problems with counseling or the reason why we go get counseling oftentimes, oftentimes, is because we think that heaven should be now. Our expectations is that that everything there, all that's good and glorious and awesome then should be now. And we've kind of staked our hopes on the wrong things in the wrong timing. We live in the already, but not yet. But there are some absolute awesome promises that we can stake our whole entire lives on. That, as verse 4 says, our chief shepherd will appear and you will receive the unfading crown of glory then. Until then, this means that we wrestle, we struggle We may, of course, face discouragement, inner turmoil. I mean, you can think of the Psalms. The psalmists face plenty of anxieties, but yet they go to God, certainly in praise, but also in desperation, also in lament, 
also in confession. They plead with God, and finally, they turn to hope. There's only one psalm that doesn't end where the psalmist turns to hope. All the rest, they do. But how do we read that one? You say, well, hold on, what about that one psalm that doesn't go to hope? We say, well, that, we're supposed to read that in light of everything. And for me as a Christian, I think that's a reminder that one, that one psalm, Psalm 88, that doesn't go to hope, that's a reminder that some days you might close your eyes and feel like there's no hope. But the next day, there is in Christ. Even there, we are taught to read our days, if you think about that one psalm, in light of all of our days as we are upheld by the mighty hand of God. Peter calls us to go to God, to entrust ourselves to Him, just as Jesus did in our own suffering. Uh, turn over to 1 Peter chapter 3. Sorry, 1 Peter chapter 2. So, you know, since we're concluding the book, this is a bit of an overview, uh, which is why we're turning around to different places. So it's awesome to hear you guys turning the pages of your Bible. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 23. When Christ was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Christian, are you struggling in the already but not yet? We're to look to Jesus. Even when he was assaulted, he continued in holiness, glorifying God, entrusting himself here, humbling himself to God, knowing that God's mighty hand would in fact work and raise him from the dead three days later after he died on the cross. And then he gets up from the dead. Christian, the mighty hand of God that delivered the Israelites out of Egypt, the mighty hand of God that delivered Christ from the grave, is that same hand that's going to deliver you. Listen to Romans chapter 8, verse 11. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. Life for Christ, life for Christians. And when we cling to God and his promises... Just as Jesus was faithful, so we too can walk in faithfulness in His Spirit. You see, there is great reason, tremendous reason, even in the midst of suffering, to humble ourselves under God and entrust ourselves to Him. The God of all comfort meets us with His mighty hand. And as we already read in 1 Peter 3.12, also with His open ear. And so therefore, we can cast all of our anxieties upon the Lord. Not just some. Peter says all of them. All, every single one of them. Just as Christ did in the garden in his time of need, lamenting, calling upon God, entrusting himself to God's will, praying that his will be done. So, Christian, we can too. Does God hear from you much? Does he hear about your anxieties? Does the frequency with which you take things to God in prayer, does that reflect who he is? So that those, if they were to listen to you pray, they would know this person prays to God, Jesus. And based on what they pray about, well, this, he must think that this Jesus is faithful is strong, is powerful, is going to deliver one day. Do your prayers reflect that God's ear is always open? Your quietness in prayer may reflect your own heart towards God. It could reveal doubt in God's character. It could even reveal, reveal bitterness Perhaps because things are simply not working out the way that you so hoped they would. 
And that maybe we're so used to praying to God, the sovereign one, that our own wills would be done that we sometimes struggle, throw fits to God even. We want to run away. We want to hide. We want to avoid. And we say we're going to take care of things on our own. Friends, if that's you, if that's ever been you, we have to realize, if that's you now, we have to realize that we are at spiritual danger. Spiritual danger because somehow we've adopted the lie that says if God were loving, He would do everything we want for ourselves. He would do everything we want for ourselves. But we got to fight to remember, no, God loves us. This brings us to point number two. Don't worry, my points get shorter as we go along. Point number two, in everything we have to fight to remember God's love for us. When we are in spiritual danger, I have adopted this mindset that God doesn't love us because he's not giving me what I want on my timeline, which I have struggled with. I'm sure many of us have here. We have to fight to remember God's love for us. And it is really clear that this is a fight based on our passage. Look at 5, 8, and 9. 5, 8, and 9. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Resist him. Firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. Verse 8 begins with two other commands. The next two commands here, be sober-minded and be watchful. Both of these are used elsewhere in the New Testament to call Christians to being alert right, as they live in the already, but not yet. They're looking forward. So these words here calls Christians to alertness, clear-headedness. That's what sober-minded means. Clear-headedness about the things of God, about sin, about the world, about everything, according to the Word of God. Being watchful obviously means being alert specifically as we wait for Jesus And from the verse, it's obvious why we have to be sober-minded and alert. It's because the devil prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour, seeking to destroy their faith, bring us down. The devil is an enemy, identified here as an enemy. He's a spiritual being. Here he's described as an enemy. The same idea is found in the Hebrew word Satan, which can be translated adversary. And the devil, Satan, stands against God and his people. Listen to this. Satan is described as 2 Corinthians 4, 4, the God of this world has blinded the minds, effect on the mind of unbelievers. Ephesians 2, 2 describes him as the prince of the power of the air whose spirit is at work in the disobedient. And if you read the Bible, if you read the Gospels, we know exactly what Satan is about. In the temptation of Christ, Satan is trying to derail Jesus, the son of God, the beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And he wants him to not go to the cross. Not destroy sin, death, and Satan. In 1 Timothy 3, Satan is described as having laid traps for Christians, us, aimed at ensnaring us and turning us towards sin and away from God. This is serious stuff. And so we are told to watch out. We're told to resist him, as verse 9 says. And if we don't, we could be devoured, give up, not persevere until the end. And part, friends, part of being sober-minded and alert involves being aware of how Satan and sin works. I can't imagine that there's tons of different ways that Satan works, but one horribly strategic and evil way he works is to sow seeds of suspicion and distrust between God and his people, trying to get us to doubt his good authority and his great love for us. And friends, this is exactly what he did in the garden with Adam and Eve. Satan, in effect, says, God did not say that. Right? He's making God out to be a Scrooge, like some miserly old dude upstairs. He's stingy. He's a petty God who's trying to somehow keep Adam and Eve from gaining something that is only God's. The devil takes the same approach in the desert with Jesus and God the Father. If you really are the Son of God the beloved one of God. Do you think the the implication is, do you think that he would send you into the desert with nothing to eat? So turn these stones into bread. And then he goes on and actually tries to launch an attack on specifically his trust towards God. Test him. 
See if he's actually going to do it. Is he really going to do it? Is he going to send his angels to lift you up and minister to you? Satan works to sow seeds of distrust. Doubt leads to distrust, which leads to bitterness, which leads to division, which leads to distance. And then we know this in our own personal relationships. Imagine one year later after that bitterness sets in, five years later, 10 years later, 15 years later, there's virtually no relationship. There's only clouded minds and hearts. As you live with false assumptions, premature conclusions, and eventually just plain hard-heartedness. I'm guessing that more than a few of us know what that's like. Even right now, between us and God, we experience some sort of difficulty and we doubt God's love for us. Friends, in those moments of suffering, of confusion, right, we gotta fight to think biblically about everything. We gotta fight to remember God's love for us in Jesus and remembering the danger that humanity was in. Sin. And how God rescued us helps us cling to the truth, right? This is in recounting the gospel, right? If if we're ever tempted to think, no, you certainly don't love us, right? What we're encouraged to do actually is to go back and see all the ways in which God does in fact love us. He's like the loving parent that so patiently reminds us, do you remember then? And so we are invited in the gospel to review over and over and over again God's love for us. Our greatest problem, according to the Bible, is sin. And who is it that takes care of that greatest problem? It is God. We were the ones who had rebelled against God, right? Tried to set up our own kingdom when he alone is creator and king. And for that, we all know that that's treason. The punishment is death, eternal death, God says, even in hell. But, but God, being rich in mercy, the Bible says, he doesn't wait for us and say, you must be perfect, and then I save you. He says, I'll save you anyways. For God so loved the evil and bad and sinful world, he sends his son to die on the cross for sin. So our greatest problem, which is sin and separation from God, judgment of God, God takes care of. And here we see this in Jesus. We see this manifestation, this revelation of God's grace to sinners as he lives the perfect life that we needed to, we should have, and he dies the death that we deserve, bearing the wrath that we deserved. And it's not just so that we would be free. It's so that we would be free to live in his kingdom, enjoying his love and his grace and mercy all the time, where we now know him as Father, loving Father, Deliverer, Savior, and good Lord. Christ is the answer to our most devastating problems. He is the one who defeats sin, death, and Satan. Colossians 2.15 says, And Christ put them to shame, open shame. He's talking about evil there and Satan. By triumphing over them in Christ and his cross. And our deliverance is definitive if you've repented of your sins and believe on Jesus. Colossians 1.13 says, He has already, He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. So if you want to remember and then continue to see God's love for us, even in the difficulty, even when we're tempted to not think, to not believe that God loves us. He tells us, no, look again to Jesus. 1 Corinthians 4.10, or sorry, 1 John 4.10 says, in this is love. In this is love. That he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Christian, what are you looking for today in the midst of your anxieties? to remember that God loves you. It's a wonderful invitation here to go back to the gospel over and over and over again. And friends, this is exactly what we need. We need to be reminded 
that God loves us. And we do this, hopefully, in every single service on the Lord's Day. The Lord's Day brings our hearts, which sometimes are focused downward, focused on ourselves, focused inward. It brings our hearts upward to the Lord who will deliver us and forward, upward and forward, looking to the day when he returns, the chief shepherd returns, and will bring us all into glory. That's a huge theme in the book. If you go to First Peter chapter 1, First Peter chapter 1, if you look there at verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope, which Pastor Marco mentioned earlier, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And here you go, already putting it on their minds as they're going through suffering, maybe doubting, they're being beaten for their faith, they're being mocked, they're being ridiculed. He reminds them of what is to come, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last days. Friends, every single Lord's Day, Praise God, he's the one who told us to gather so that we would have regular weekly reminders that we can trust in him, that he alone is worthy of our praise, of our trust. And we do this in the songs. The songs are super encouraging this morning. 10,000 reasons, no matter what occurs, we have reasons to trust in God. I might not believe it in this particular thing, but I know it to be true. Help me believe it to be true. Almost home, This life is difficult, but only, if only, God, help us go. Help us move forward, step after step after step, and be faithful as we make our way home, as God preserves us all the way home. He will hold me fast. It's God himself that preserves by his power all the way until the end, salvation ready to be revealed in the last days. We conclude with it is well. We can say that only by the grace of God and joy of the Spirit in Jesus Christ knowing the forgiveness of sin. We, we, we have this wonderful reminder that God alone is our deliverer. We read Isaiah chapter 40. Let's go there too. Isaiah chapter 40. We didn't read all of it, but uh, hopefully what was read is still in your mind. They who wait for the Lord, this is verse 31 of Isaiah chapter 40. They who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not be faint. Why? Is it because you, friend, are so strong? No, it's because God has a mighty hand. What does he do? Look there at verse 10, verses 10 and 11 of Isaiah chapter 40. Behold, the Lord God comes with might and his arm rules for him. Behold, his reward is with him and his recompense before him. He will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those that are with young. Of course, we do it in the prayers. I hope you guys are paying attention to the prayers because I'm so encouraged by the way that Mako prays. We didn't touch base about the specifics of the sermon. He's just reading Isaiah chapter 40. He's looking at 1 Peter. He knows, well, shoot, if God is who he says he is, then we can be free from anxieties. That's exactly what he prayed. I didn't even talk to him about it. He's just looking at the word. It's, it's just a natural application from the word of God. There's so much that can be learned from the ways in which we pray together and publicly. Of course, we preach the gospel from every passage of the text that we're preaching on. As the main point of the passage, as the main point of the sermon, we want to preach the gospel from every passage. This Lord's Day gathering here points us upward to God and forward to Christ's return. In the midst of all of these struggles, God reminds us of his great love for us in our Lord and Savior who died on the cross for sins. Friends, this is a collective effort too. It's so encouraging to know that God is your hope. Right when we know what you are going through, at least a little bit, to look over in one direction and know, wow, that sister's singing. He will hold me fast. Do you know what's going on in her life? This brother over there, do you know what's going on in his life? And yet he's singing almost home and fighting to believe it. It's not easy, but he's fighting. It's so encouraging. It's a collective effort here where we gather together to sing praises to one another and then, of course, to God to hear the word read and then to encourage one another in it. 
And so then as we scatter throughout the week, back to our homes, our workplaces, our families, we can continue get meeting up together, encouraging one another to look to Jesus Christ. It's supposed to be a, a, a collective effort and an encouragement that all of God's people are clinging to the same promises. You look there in verse 9. Peter says, resist him firm in the faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by our brotherhood throughout the world. The implication is, and they are still trusting in our Christ. Thank God that no matter how strong the devil is compared to mere men, he is no match for Christ and his people by his spirit. He is the one who promised, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not overcome it. And just as he is building his church, so he will deliver us. This brings us to point number three. God will deliver you. God will deliver you. Look at verses 10 and 11. After you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. What a glorious promise. If you're suffering, you know, when he says there a little while, he's not making light of suffering in this world, right? In suffering, sometimes we feel like it is very, very long the point, what he's trying to get at, what he's trying to emphasize is that compared to eternal glory, his eternal glory in Christ, everything, no matter what is experienced here, thank God, is finally momentary. We hear similar comparison in 2 Corinthians 4.17 for this light and momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. You see how it helps us go, Upward, forward, upward to the Lord, forward to his return. If, this, if the stuff of the world is all that there is, right, then we have reason to be anxious. Because wherever the world goes, so should go our heart. But thank God, we as Christians, according to the word, know exactly where, the word, where, where this world is going. It's going to recreation, because God himself is bringing it about. And all of these biblical truths cast our hearts to his eternal glory so that we would understand the temporary, this world, in light of the eternal, the physical, the big toe, in light of the spiritual. God wants our hearts fixed on him. Did you look there in verse 10? We're pointed to God at the conclusion of the letter, not once, not twice, but three times. First, the God of all grace. Second, you look there, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ? Third, will himself, it even says himself, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. So friends, with him at the steering wheel, with him being sovereign in all power and absolutely loving and wielding those things on your behalf, Christian, what is there to fear? What is there to be anxious about? We then as Christians can be freed to lose the world knowing that we gain eternal glory in Jesus. And God Himself will stand you firm in His kingdom and His glory all by His grace, all by His mighty hand. Suffering is difficult. Resisting the devil is difficult. But even though we experience life in a fallen and sinful world, we absolutely never need to doubt God's future provision for us in the midst of these circumstances because He will do all that He promises. Thus, He who called you in grace, Christian, has destined you for an eternity in it. We just need now to stand firm in it, according to 5.12, clinging to God and his promises. God loves you. We as a church, as a community, need to fight to remember this in every circumstance, all the time. And we need to remember that he will, in fact, deliver us. As Romans 8 says, if God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? 
For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. And as 1 Peter 5.11 says, To Him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, Lord, we confess that our faith sometimes falters for so many different reasons. But we thank you, God, that our salvation is not dependent finally on us. But you yourself promised to guard us through faith for that salvation ready to be revealed. Just as you have called us into grace, so Lord, we know that you will bring that grace to us. We know too, Lord, that you will restore us, that you're going to stand us firm in it. So Lord, we pray that as we cling to who you are and all that you have promised, help us to believe. Help us to go back to your word over and over and over again, even in the midst of such great struggles. Help us see Christ clearly. Help us trust in you who has promised that the work that you started in us, you will in fact complete. And help us, Lord, to cling to the fact that you love us in Jesus Christ. Lord, we pray that you would empower all of us, that you would help us open our mouths to each other, that we would be attentive that we would have big hearts for one another so that when we see someone faltering or tempted, we would be quick to come to their aid to minister biblical, godly truth to their hearts so that they might stand firm in it as well. Lord, we pray for this church. We pray, God, that you would, in fact, sustain us by your grace to the praise of your glorious grace. These things we pray in your name. Amen.